Thanks for joining us for another episode of Doors Hybrid Intelligent Podcast, where we bring together interesting people doing interesting things from the worlds of business, innovation, design, technology, and culture. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by designer, technologist, and author Pete Trainer, who's recently made the jump to the C-suite, becoming the CEO of Valor Health. Welcome to the podcast, Pete. Thanks very much for having me. A grey, rainy day here. I, I'm in I'm in London in my bedroom. Where where did you find yourself today? I am sitting in the loft study at our house, uh, a bit like everybody else at the moment, just trying to function normally in a space somewhere in your home and be a professional <laughs> yeah. in your home. Like everybody's yeah. going to do the same problem. I'm yeah, yeah. To... A quiet corner. So even the study is kind of, you know, turned into a, a playground for the kids, but it's good. Right. We're all in it, aren't we? So. Yeah, it's hard to find refuge. Yes. So um, we, we, we've we known each other for a while. Now, you, you, you have a design background. You're uh, an active mental health campaigner. You're a technologist. Uh, as I said in the introduction, you've recently made the jump to the C-suite and the, uh, now CEO of Valor Health. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your and your background? You've written a book. You do lots of public speaking. So, okay. Uh, well, I mean, it's been a. It feels like a, a long, a long path to be an overnight success uh, at this stage. I was doing this for, for, for twenty five years. A couple of years ago, I hit my twenty five year anniversary, which was quite scary. Mm. But one thing's always been constant. So, sort of from the nineties all the way through, I've always been fixing problems and, and designing solutions to problems, even if my job title has changed you know I've always been finding a technical solution to a problem or finding a you know a, a, a wireframe solution to a problem or sketching on a wall trying to solve a problem um, right and really I, don't, I think that's the one constant in the last 25 years is, is problem solving and therefore you know in my head I've always been a designer um, and the book that I wrote a few years ago the very first chapter was really kind of a, a just a quick look back on that and saying if you think about design as, as problem solving, you know, and, and design with a, you know, a big D, so strategic type design, I mean, it's kind of more of us that are designers than perhaps we give ourselves credit for. Um, sure. And that, uh, that book was called, um, it's called human, human, yeah, human focused digital. Uh, it feels like, and that feels like a long time ago now as well. And right. everything's changed again since, since I did the, the book. Um, it was a bit of a philosophical look at, at the technology that I'd, contributed to creating over the last you know 20 years um and and all the mistakes that we made along the way because we probably took our eye off um the human in the equation we started to treat right. people as users as numbers as um customers as uh you know wallets without faces yeah some of i really look back on yeah i mean i often think that when people say digital transformation often that can be a proxy for saying, how do we do this without any people? And if you take that to its logical conclusion, then what are the social implications of that? So you now find yourself as CEO of, of Valor Health. And one of the reasons why I wanted to invite you onto this podcast is we, in this series, are exploring the theme of optimism. And obviously we're in a, a very challenging period. And as we move out of that, we believe optimism is a very important quality that we need in terms of moving forward. And you can, you can call it hope, you can call it positive energy, but the reason why we think this is so important is our beliefs, values, but also our outlook shapes and influence not only what we do, but what we strive for. And I think with the, the work that you're doing now and the work that you've, you've done previously in your career around you know, AI, technology, user experience, and so on. I thought you'd be a fantastic person to speak to about this theme of, of optimism. So one of your, your mantras, which I think is, is, is really interesting, is this idea of don't do things better, do better things. That struck me as that, that is an inherently optimistic statement. It's almost, I'd describe it as applied optimism. It's very directional and it moves this concept of optimism from something which is quite abstract to something that you can really apply i was interested to ask you what what was the origin or genesis of of, of that kind of philosophy or, or or mantra 
I'd always been the person in every company over the last 25 years that was sitting at the back saying, you know, why are we doing that? Why? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Where's the social benefit? What's the impact of, of all of this kind of stuff? And, you know, often to my detriment professionally, because a lot of people don't want people uh, around them that ask complicated questions or act yeah. like children or, you know, they don't want a child. They want, a, you know, a professional. And so I'd always had this childlike quality of, of just questioning absolutely everything, you know, like I say, to, to the detriment of probably my my um, some relationships throughout throughout my career. And what happened was when we were reflecting, when I was putting the book together, when I was really reflecting um, with my editor, uh, Luke, kind of on the themes that kept cropping up, it was, I kept saying, you know, the problem I've had over the last 20 plus years is that we keep doing the same thing over and over again. Like we keep reinventing the same thing. You know, we're creating the next version of something that exists rather than the best version of something brand new. Like there's- So it's so optimization in a sense. Yeah, and you know, right. innovation, not invention has been something that we've all kind of like latched onto. And right. um, the, the, the don't do things better, um, you know, do better things, Mantra really came out of that. It almost became the book title. And then when we looked at it, we were kind of, it's, it's too obvious. Um, it was like that it ended up being the organizing idea for the entire book. Uh, and it's on the, you know, the back page of the book. And it's something that uh, I've always kept very true. And I think it was the one thing that, that ran, um, lots of people latched onto it and said, oh yeah, we've been trying to think of some way of describing what bugs us and what bugs people is this idea of, you know, repetitively trying to solve the same problem rather than stepping back and saying you know well, what is the problem you're trying to solve like what is it that we should be doing and maybe you can fit you know um a, a completely different industry into a, a different type of technology or a different type of technology into a completely different industry like we should just stop going down linear paths and start being much more non-linear um yeah. so that was really the the genesis of it. that's where it came from but it was also it, it's also for me been a guiding principle about um you know uh, be people focused like optimistically like it always works out generally speaking if you bring it back to the one thing that's constant and that is people that's mm. human beings who are you know chaotic and unpredictable and wonderful and stupid and irritating <laughs> and happy and sad like the, those things are constant the, the, the bits that are, you know, constantly changing, they're almost unpredictable, ironically, is the technological bits, you know, the interfaces and the screens and the bits that glue it all together. Those are kind of constantly in flux. It's people that are the constant thing throughout everything. So you must design everything around that kind of a service. So as someone now who is also responsible for steering uh, a, bus a business, a Valor Health, how do you try and apply this philosophy and that dimension of your of your work because I, I can see if you are you know you've got a group of um you know an interdisciplinary team who's working on building a new product and the context of this idea of you know um striving to do better things how have you been applying or thinking about that in terms of now being a business leader is is, is that something you're consciously thinking about or definitely definitely i think without um without getting too kind of uh, deep and philosophical about, about the journey and, uh, you know, everybody is on a journey. Um, I fit, it felt last year that it was leading to this. And the fact that I'd always been this awkward, you know, probably more people focused than I should have been kind of person, like true to that all the way through. Um, and even some of the work we've been doing kind of in my previous consultancy that I owned, you know, around mental health and things like that, I was always latching onto the health, to people, to well-being. Um, so one Valor approached me and said that they were interested in uh, an external influence coming in to drive this business forward, to try and pull together the technological and design and operational side of the business and this team of um, like world-class cl clinicians from, from some amazing backgrounds. That kind of... It, it felt really logical. It felt kind of strange, this idea of, of making that leap into a very grown-up job. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, when they when they broke it all down and said, you know, we need somebody uh, with their heart on their sleeve who's creative, who's strategic, but also 
smart enough to look at the technology and, and try and pair that all together. Pivoting around, again, the one thing that's constant, which is vulnerable people. So, you know, people don't go to the doctor because they're all right. They generally, I wish they did, because then they probably wouldn't go to the doctor when it's, you know, hanging off. They'd go, you know, more regularly. But people don't generally kind of interact with GPs and doctors and clinicians because things are going well. They're doing it because they're vulnerable. And so they needed like a, a really interesting um, sort of mixture of lots of different ways of thinking and lots of different uh, thoughts and lots of different disciplines to come in and lead this business. Um, yeah. So in a very strange kind of way, this this bizarre journey of uh, shifting roles and um, tech and data and AI and, and human focused design and and you know strategy and consultancy and everything it was it's been like this MBA on steroids that brings you to this point um, and it's just been I mean in the last six months COVID aside uh, it's been just a wonderful wonderful journey really really fascinating just mind blowing watching clinicians on the front line working you know, ethically observing what they're doing with our, our, our membership with our patients, but just mind blowing to be that close to the actual problems that we all get out of bed to try and solve every day. So you see, so you mentioned when we were having a chat about um, putting this together, that the, the, the cl clinicians themselves have surprised you in a way in the sense oh. that they, they sometimes think like designers or they, 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 they just instinctively collaborate and problem solve is, 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 has that been your experience? I've always had, you know, I've always had a respect for somebody that does a job like that. So somebody that, you know, probably puts other people's health and well-being way in front of their own kind of on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, we've got doctors in the family, so I've, I've always been close to clinicians. Um, but when you see them solving problems uh, and like on the fly, genuine problems, um, looking at a picture of a, you know, a, a a, a rash or a bump or um, speaking to uh, a, a patient sort of via a phone or screen and they're making like hundreds of micro decisions in a minute on, on all the different variables that it could possibly be and they're, they're picking up a piece of technology to search for some answers or reference or you know talking to another clinician on the back channel to say this is happening with a patient do you think it could be x y or z um, mm. And again, I just have to stress ethically, all of this is done ethically because the patient, um, you, you realize that these are entrepreneurial, creative thinkers, um, probably in a way that nobody gives them credit for or even realizes. And it's genuinely blown my mind. And I think if anybody, and I'd say this uh, to everybody, I think if anybody has a, a passion for something, be that health or finance or transport or, you know, whatever gets you kind of going, um, Go and work close to it and, and go and absorb yourself in it. And it, you may be surprised that you know probably not quite as much about it as you think you did, um, but then you'll just enjoy like completely learning a whole new discipline all over again. Uh, it's been a genuine joy. That's, yeah. I, I think it's, it's the same thing with innovation or strategy or product development where, you know, until you've done something built a prototype tried something out it, it, it's all a hypothesis isn't it and you can you can have certain preconceived ideas and make intelligent guesses but until you've you know sat yeah. in the chair or actually tried to make uh, a prototype work you you find out so much more about it and it's the same with strategy you don't know a strategy will the strategy survive its first contact with the real world so it's all yeah. about getting close close to it yeah. um as you said i think i think the other thing that i find really fascinating about this and and the other thing I, I guess in a funny sort of way i've probably leaped not just industry um and and job role to a certain extent but also from a kind of consultant agency owner to client side so you know uh, i'm now it's a big transition there is a big transition and and it, mm. it's also a strange transition because you're looking at it you know, not just from the point of view of, of a a business um, head, but you're also looking at it from the point of view of, oh, well, now I'm in a, now I'm in an industry um, that's not consulting two industries. It's like I'm in a in a in a bubble, if you like. Um, yeah. Really, really, quite strange, fascinating, and, and, a, and a steep learning curve at the same time. But what 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 I find really mind blowing doing this leap 
is to your to your point about you know innovating and testing and iterating and and you know when you're dealing with actual people and their health data and their families and their worries anxieties fears mental health um all of those things that that make us fallible you can't muck about with that right. uh, and i'm not saying that agencies muck about but they also have the privilege of being able to experiment and um you know uh lab some of it and skunk work some of it and and kind of dream a little bit when you're dealing with something that is that sensitive that we deal with it in in valor um you can't get that wrong yeah because the you get that wrong um it's not it's not people's money which is bad you know it's people's health it's people's like life um and again that's been mind-blowing to try and get my head around so so we could go off on a massive tangent here, but this is super, super interesting. So at the, the risk of doing that, what, what kind of adjustments then do you have to make? Because yes, if you're building a, an app for a new dry cleaning business or whatever, and you, you, you know, or something in e-commerce, it's a completely different ball game, as you say, to things to do with, with, with health so in terms of that development process and and your approach to it as a business what can you say anything um yeah about sure. the kind of kind of adjustments you need to make because we're obviously you know one of the big themes of business is becoming more agile and more and more businesses are accepting the culture of experimentation in order to learn so obviously there are very few tougher environments to do that than yeah. in 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 healthcare and other industries are regulated like financial services but healthcare obviously is a, is a step above so so how, how how do you how do you get around that yeah well i mean we have to be incredibly close to the let me just back up we're lucky in as much as we're a private medical business so we can have uh, quite a close relationship with our audience so getting volunteers to you know come forward and test new hypotheses or innovations and things like that it's actually not that difficult but you still got to within that find the right people and make sure they know what they're getting themselves in for so i'll give you an example so one of the like really exciting bits of technology um that's been in my head for a while now that with a company like valor i get to really try and drive forward is this concept of um what i nicknamed about 18 months ago uh, salutinogenic technology so salute salutinogenesis is this whole concept of you know cause not condition so yeah. if you go further upstream you know we're not looking for and we we did this when we were looking at mental health with, with the agency it was you know we're not looking to save people when they get to the bridge that's too late you're looking at finding the causes of the situation way, way further upstream and, and trying to get in front of people, you know, before they get in the car to drive to the bridge um, as an analogy. And that that idea, and that's where AI and data is, is particularly interesting because you can start to really predict a potential future, um, you know, controversially. So the whole idea of doing that with something like uh, Valor, so having a layer that, that helps the doctors, the clinicians, um, analyze and predict or um, look at where a condition may have come from so that you can start to treat the causes rather than medicate the condition. Um, super fascinating. And again, I, I feel really privileged to be in a situation right now where I can put some of those theories and hypotheses into an actual business. Um, yeah. However, however, and this is like, and you'll find within our, our, our base of audience, people coming forward and they'll say, oh yeah, we really want to be part of that. That sounds like an amazing experience. Like, we, you know, we'll, 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 we'll be in the beta or the alpha group to test some of those things. And then you go, well, you haven't really thought about it. If this goes wrong and if, you know, we start to predict if everything has a kind of 90% accuracy rate in healthcare with predictive technologies, that 10% can be pretty bad. Um, yeah. So, you know, so you're saying, so you're saying it is the primary difference is about identifying the right people to partner yeah. with on experiment. Is that, is that the key difference as opposed Absolutely. to, Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a world away from AB testing or any kind of, you know, ethnographic research or anything like that, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you start to say to people, it might be the thing that you're eating, um, uh, cut that out of your, your diet. Um, and then that one thing that they cut out their diet is actually something that keeps them kind of healthy. Like they were, they we're a complicated 
and yeah. teach human beings. So it's really, so I think, I think the, the biggest change for me, the, the most exciting thing, um, it's always been there in the back of my head. It's something I've always, you know, worn on my sleeve is, is ethics is now in an industry, in a business like this, ethics is the thing that has to drive every single design decision. There are no unethical decisions in a business where you're experimenting with technology, you know, on people's health. Um, whereas I think there, are, to your point there, I think there are some industries where, of course, everything has to be ethical. You're dealing with people's data or you're dealing with people's information. But I think, you know, there are certain industries where, you know, an, a, an accidental decision, something that's accidentally unethical or deliberately unethical, um, doesn't cause something completely yeah. catastrophic. It's yeah. losing laundry or it's, you know, a thousand yeah. quid's worth of savings go down the drain or whatever it is. Um, yes. So ethics drives absolutely everything in a business like this. Mm. So, so if we, if we then bring, bring this back to this, this theme of, of optimism in, in this period, and, and, and you've obviously done a lot of work in mental health previously and currently, do you, do you, do you think an optimistic mindset can be cultivated? Well, I have a, I have a, um, an interesting perspective on this uh, because uh, I'm a twin. So uh, I have a twin brother and growing up, we were always very much, you know, the joke with friends and family was always very much, you know, two sides of the same coin. He was always very uh, sporty. I was always very artistic. He was always very optimistic. I was always very pessimistic, um, okay. kind of very yin yang on everything. So I, I from that perspective, I've always grown up thinking that this is something that's much more natural. So it's kind of, you know, um, nature rather than nurture. Um, however, over the last few years, as I've really studied optimism and changing people's behaviors uh, and things like that, um, habits and patterns are, are definitely things that drive people's optimism or pessimism. And so it is, I think it is completely possible, having grown up a pessimist, to start looking at things more optimistically if you can identify the things that make you pessimistic in the first place. So you can cultivate an optimism and you can build a culture of optimism and you can inspire people within an organisation to be you know, fully optimistic and also embrace pessimism because it's, it's important to have that opposite perspective on all of this kind of stuff. So the things that, that you've done to, to foster that, or you use, can, do you have any... Any, any thoughts or ideas on that? Or is it just a very personal thing, I guess? I think one of my superpowers is, is, is that I'm a, I'm a realist and accepting of the fact that I have faults and flaws and they manifest sometimes, you know, in good and bad ways, but everybody's exactly the same. And I think, you know, being able to accept that everything is not gonna be perfect but can be worked on um, is actually a, a, for me it's worked really well as a as a as a, as a way of being um, and, and, and as a way of, of driving a service or, or a business or um, you know a piece of work it doesn't have to be 100% perfect nothing is 100% perfect mm. um, so there's definitely kind of a, an acceptance that if you're if you're moving forward it's not always going to be positive um, but you have to keep moving forward we wouldn't have done all the work we wouldn't have put so much energy into the men's mental health stuff over the years, uh, I wouldn't have put so, you know so much of my my own time and energy into that if I did not think we could make a difference, you know. And if you don't feel like you can make a difference to a particular thing that's um, you know affecting parts of society or you know statistically creating some really quite grim numbers, then you're probably not the right person to be driving something like that forward. Do you know what I mean? But that doesn't yeah. mean there isn't something else that you can't go and drive forward. So I think there's something for everybody. Um, but I think being a complete realist about it, like we said, I've always said right from the beginning, we're not going to solve this problem. We're going to knock, you know, one number um, off the problem. And then we might knock two off and we might knock three off, but you're never going to solve the whole problem um, because you've got to be realistic about this. And that for me is, a, is, is quite a, you know, honest way of being and an honest way of doing stuff. So, so not being, I guess, paralyzed by this sense of perfection. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, because I don't believe in perfection. And I think actually, right. and I've, I started to believe uh, a while ago now that 
um, kind of it's our imperfections that that draw people to something or yeah. uh, you know and, and actually one of the things one of the pieces of advice I've been giving you know lots of um, sort of younger people that are struggling with their mental health or, or having conversations with me after conferences that I spoke at or you know who've picked up and read parts of the book and that talked about mental health and things like that and, and they come to me and, and I'm going well you know the problem in the last 10 years is quite a large chunk of the internet that was built amplifies a false perfection you know and and that's had a detrimental effect on people that don't feel like they can live up to that perfection you yes celebrity celebrities online and, and social media and um you know interactions with uh influencers and all these kind of icky things like that you know it's not healthy and it's clearly having a, a very negative effect on people's emotions and detrimental to their mental health uh, I, I genuinely believe it but people are striving towards a perfection that doesn't exist and so that you know the advice is, is exactly as you just said is don't worry about it like just be sort of brilliantly flawed it doesn't matter um and i think within there it is a is a you know is an optimism of sorts that, that i i personally find very healthy yeah it's it, it's almost i guess where if your sense of optimism is so heavily skewed to a perfect idea of what your life should be like or your circumstances should be like or a product that you're making or anything that you're doing it can almost backfire in it, in a sense so that realism that you talk about yeah is not saying don't don't strive or move forward but taken too far it can can almost you know backfire in itself and that sense of optimism and drive taken too far can yeah can actually be unhealthy yeah i mean i've worked with, with people over years i may have even been one at one point who you know we worked in a in an industry that you know we called usability before it was user experience and you know and, and then sort of ia and various other things all collided and, and became you know something else again and again and again but for a while back in the early noughties you know we were striving for perfectionism and clients were paying us big lumps of money to constantly tweak optimize make better make perfect a service i was sitting down the other day talking to somebody that was you know in the trenches with me 15 years ago on some of this stuff longer ago on some of this stuff and we're going it's kind of all just working right now like yeah <laughs> it kind of all just works so and and everybody's got over a little bit like we found patterns that are standard and we found things that are average and you know it all just kind of works and it all kind of connects and we don't get quite as frustrated as we used to be you know and and i think what's happened is everybody's accepted that it's you know 90 percent all right and the 10 percent is just it's it is what it is and therefore is we, should what it put, is. we should put our energy into something way more uh, interesting and optimistic and and um you know fascinating and again you know moving something forward yeah so so you've spoken about this idea of minimum viable personality so a sort of twist on mvp and I, i'm also very very interested uh, in this area and increasingly as you know people working in innovation, product development, we're creating behavior and yeah. designing things that you, you can't see, whether it's, you know, uh, audio interactions with, with, with algorithms, whether it's the smart home, whether it's autonomous vehicles, where, you know, how should these things respond? What kind of personality should they have? And at a lower level, all products in a sense have, a, a personality where it's tone of voice or the 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 kind of brand a brand uh, expression so when we when we're talking about creating and shaping those things and thinking about what we are codifying into algorithms mm -hmm. and things like that how I, I, i'm sort of fascinated by this area of how you bring personality including optimism and what kind of outlook these smart objects and smart services have yeah is that is that something you're because in the in the world of healthcare and 
applying machine learning to prediction and things like that you've talked about are you are you guys thinking about this this kind of thing personality and yeah totally yeah totally and it, it, it was it was interesting hearing you you know talk just then because there's a few things that you said that that like we've been we've been doing it for decades like design designers and inventors and you know uh, uh, product um, drivers embed a little bit of themselves in everything they do um, and one the internet got quote-unquote smart and everything was you know datafied it, we sucked a little bit of everybody out and, and put it in um, so there's a little bit of, of human essence in absolutely everything um, and I think it would be uh, sort of naive of us not to consider the fact that there are all of our biases are, all, are already there they're all in everything that we've done you know um, we, we, we try to be geniuses at what we do and we, we deliberately do that um, never really accepted it so what was really so what I've always found fascinating and what's coming into fruition now is this idea that maybe we can do that more deliberately so again if you accept the fact that we've already we've always done it there's always been a little bit of us in everything we do because um, that's human nature um, and ego and and all that kind of good stuff um, you leave your fingerprints yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah and again we yeah. shouldn't be ashamed of it like and i think for a while people were kind of ashamed of this idea that you know there's a little bit of everybody and everything you know we're all we're all artists in some shape or form but but now we're doing it now we can start to do it deliberately and probably in a more defined way that i find really fascinating and that I think is really important as well. And I remember in about 1996, picking up Ray Kurzweil's Age of Spiritual Machines and it blowing mm. my mind, this yeah. science fiction concept of, you know, machines that could think or machines that could intuit or machines that could, you know, start to emulate some of what we do um, and perhaps do it better. That, that concept right there was planted in my head in the 90s and is coming out now in everything that we're doing. So like chatbots, things that you're already doing, yeah, the technology. But, but like... the, the, that, that for me is deliberate. So that's like, you know, deliberately designing um, sort of uh, personalities for systems that speak back. Yeah, great. And, and absolutely, we, sh we should do that with some consideration. Um, but I also think, you know, in brand, there's always been a little bit of personality that comes out. Um, sure. In, in copy and writing and words, which I've always, you know, had a, a, a genuine love for, um, you know, there's something really magical in there. There's some personality in words and things like that. But now what we're seeing is the collision of all of that kind of stuff. So we're seeing the kind of the mass collision of all of these different personality decisions that people make um, into technology that talks back or sites or, or apps or experiences. Yeah, makes decisions. That, that, that know us. Yeah, um, that's right. You know, that's right. Not in a human way, and I never, I do not, I do not subscribe to this idea that they're going to outfox us in some way and, and you know, observe us. Like, not it's not that at all. But they, they on a on a data level, a machine that is part of our life that we've accepted like a pet um, knows us from everything that it's kind of derived from all of the stuff that we put into it. Um, and that, that I find really, really, really fascinating. Uh, and that yeah. is something we can ignore. And therefore, how does it talk to you? And if it uses everything it's learned from you, then it absolutely should talk to you in a way that resonates with you and in a way that you can relate to and in a way that um, you know, encourages you and helps you and knows you. Uh, and those, again, I, th I find really optimistic principles, like really, really interesting principles. Yes. Moving along just to talk about optimism in, in, in different sort of time horizons. So, so at the moment, it's, we're in a, obviously with the coronavirus pandemic, it's, it's been a real shock to the, to the world. And it's been a, a period of, of reflection, being in lockdown. Is, is, what, what, are you, what are you optimistic about kind of right now? Are there any things that you're seeing uh, in, in in from the the pandemic that mm -hmm. that 
that surprised you or you think uh, are encouraging? I mean, there's there's two ways of looking at it. So there's, you know, again, this is the um, pessimistic, optimistic two sides of my brain working in a, in a kind of constant argument with each other. But, but optimistically, I've been blown away by some most of the public's response to this um, and the way, uh, you know, brands have had to adapt and people have had to adapt and they've changed the way that they work and they've changed the way that they operate. And it's not perfect, but again, we've already covered that. Nothing's perfect. Um, and, you know, and I, I love the fact that streets and communities are coming together in a way that we should just do anyway, but it takes mm. something else to almost like, you know, light that fire again. Um, I, I, I love the fact that I'm sitting in my garden with the kids more and enjoying those moments. Um, but also I don't have airplanes like shooting overhead, uh, you know, on the flight path to Heathrow all the time. I find that really lovely. Uh, and, you know, the uh, all, all of those kind of cliche truisms that are, are coming together. And we, we probably don't hear about that stuff on the news enough. It's all a bit of a slower, a slower life. Yeah, and you know, and all the good stuff that's happening uh, in a in a pretty rubbish situation. Um, most of the media focuses on the you know the nasty numbers, not the you know the, the the stuff that is true human stories. So there's that kind of stuff, and I find that really amazing. And I do think lots and lots of people are going to be sitting around with a bit of dream time that they possibly didn't have when they were running around with busy, busy lives. Um, and there are going to be inventions and ideas that come out of all of this that you know, we probably all needed to stop, slow down a little bit to consider. Um, so that I find really fascinating and, and, I'm, and I'm really enjoying hearing those kind of things. I'm also really enjoying um, you know, seeing the service response of, you know, of companies like Valor. And I am proud of the, the business and the way that they've, they've dealt with all of this. Um, you know, watching the care and love and passion for people's health coming out every single day um, and the true value of those systems really being appreciated by the public. I find that really lovely and optimistic. And then there's the pessimistic bit of me that is looking at certain things and going like, this is completely exposed. Um, yes. You know, quite a lot of inequalities. This is completely exposed quite a lot of uh, like weak leadership in certain circles. This is completely exposed how unprepared we are for the unpredictable um, and so on and so forth. And so, I mean, it's just been fascinating. It's five weeks we've been in lockdown and we knew about this kind of couple of months before, but five weeks of, of really some of the most um, ginormous emotional, psychological and, and kind of technological changes that yes. we'll probably see again for a long time. And I, don't, I, I do not believe we go back from this. And that again, I find really fascinating as a principle. So everyone we're speaking to uh, on 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 this on this subject, we're we're asking that exactly that 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 question. So see, there's lots of schools of thought out there at the uh, at the moment whether you know there's no going back. We're moving to a new normal. Things will never be the same. And then on the other hand, there are people who think that actually things will return back to pretty much how they were, okay, a bit of more remote working and things like that, but ostensibly where we were before over time, and obviously shades of grey in between. Where are you on that? And when you say, you know, there's no going back from this, how, how do you see things, things will be different? I think it, I mean, it changes from industry to industry and situation to situation and person to person uh, as, it, as it should. But, you know, I think there are things that should return to normal and I mean should as in please soon return to normal like schools uh yeah of course I've yeah <laughs> I've, I've not I've, I've not enjoyed watching my children being taught through glass like I really yeah. have not enjoyed that at all um I can see that it's not been healthy for them I can see that it's not um you know they're missing human contact and things like that so those things I just think let's get those back to normal as quick as we can please but then i think there are other things that just won't go back to normal uh, valor you know is, is an interesting study telemedicine in the uk uh, aside from some of the big people like babylon was sort of ticking away and bubbling and like two in ten people had done 
um, you know, medicine via screens, monitors. Um, That's right. Yes. Phone and things like that. Like it's a very small statistic. Uh, you're for they've been forced into, you know, coming and using services like ours over the last five or six weeks. And the feedback yeah, it, is, it arrived, it arrived yeah, overnight got, in the sense. Yeah, yeah. Just got shoved on them. And they go like, if you yeah. want, you're scared and, and you're worried. And if you want your health sorted out, um, Oh, by the way, there are these on-demand services. What do you mean on-demand? You don't have to wait in a waiting room anymore. Oh, I didn't know I could do that. Yeah, you don't have to sit there with people breathing their germs all over you. Wow, that's good. What do you mean I can do it in my lunchtime? What do you mean I don't have to go here and do it? You know, what do you mean you send the medicine to me? And then boom, like you can see their heads exploding of, oh, I'm not going to go back and do it the other way anymore, am I? Why would I so do, do that? You, so, those, do you so think those in, things won't go hmm. back. They won't go back. Do you think, te te you know, in telemedicine in the sense of, things like i mean obviously not on the same level but in the same way that contactless payments for example are just yeah. part of, of the routine do you, do you think telemedicine now has a sort of landed and people through definitely. this will see yeah definitely mm. this is this has been for healthcare what 2008 did to banking and everybody knew pre-2008 like you know mobile banking was becoming um a thing and and you know digital banking was a kind of conversation and, and banks had departments that were digitizing stuff. And then post 2008, when everybody, the public got, you know, slightly annoyed with the bankers, slightly annoyed with the big brands, you know, the rebellions started, you know, FinTech exploded, um, yes. really pushed on by a certain amount of angst and people being forced. I don't want to go to a branch anymore. Why would I do that? I'll just pick up my phone and, you know, I'll never have to speak to a banker ever again. Those people that, that messed it all up. You know, there was that 2008, you know, was it was a massive Moment, catalyst yeah. for change. It was huge. And I think we've just had that for healthcare. I really Super do. interesting. Um, really yeah. interesting. I, I fear for traditional healthcare services um, who are probably going to suffer in the same way that some of those, um, you know, big players suffered after 2008 um, and when, you know, when the RDR report completely, you know, brutalized and things like that, there will be victims, there will be um, people that suffer quite badly at the back of all of this. Uh, and I think a lot of our public health services will be some of those victims as well, unfortunately. Um, but I do think this is the moment where, you know, that we all take our health a bit more seriously and we all take control of it a bit more and we all, um, value it a bit more and give it a bit more care and attention so looking further ahead then say two three five five years out what 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 are you optimistic about a future when we look to a further time horizon a longer time horizon what are you what are you optimistic about i'm really optimistic i think we're going through um and maybe 2020 will be the year because of all the factors that are going on um, and elections and things that are coming up and that have just happened and, and the B word and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think we're going to enter a, a period, like I'm less obsessed with technology now. Uh, it's just a thing that's used to make stuff happen. I think we're going to see a period of intense collaboration um, and different industries collaborating, different personalities collaborating, different groups of people collaborating, different uh, ages and, and, demographics and things like that. I think the next five years are going to be super, super, super fascinating when we see those kind of walls folding in on each other a little bit and we see a lot more joined up wisdom. Um, and that I think, I, mm. I think, and again, I think maybe COVID could have been the thing that started some of that happening because we haven't had any choice other than to level the playing field and collaborate a little bit better. If someone asked me the same question, that would be one of the main things that I, I would cite first. This idea of, of collaboration, if you, it's this idea of permeability for organizations in terms of how you collaborate with people, especially if you want to do things quickly. And obviously what we're seeing with the UK government at the moment in terms of how it's able to be more permeable yeah. to outside help. And the reason why this is so important is because we have this force of, of rising complexity within business and, and organizations, including governments, now have to ask themselves, what co competencies do we need to master internally? And what competencies do we need to partner on? And, and that is crucial for success in the future. Now, if you are not 
permeable. Uh, people can't contact you if you're not in the right place. Yeah. Uh, just on a basic level, you, you're not able to, to do that. And I think this, if we think about partnerships, partnerships are historically seen through the lens of commercial partnerships. And over the last few years, companies that make products that are ecosystems, ecosystems are essentially partnerships where you bring in different functionalities through APIs or so they're, they're in a sense of a form of collaboration. And now I think what's happening, which is, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. It's this idea that now partnerships, I think are going to be more mission driven, more yeah. purpose driven rather than seen through the optics of commercials, yeah. uh, com you know, commercial partnerships. It's like, what can we do? What can we achieve together? Uh, it, it, so it's, it's kind of, it's a cliche, but it's yeah. partnerships 2.0. If you see what I mean, does that, yeah, does that definitely. make sense? It makes perfect sense. There's a there's another thing, there's another really interesting one there as well, though, isn't there? Which is kind of this idea that complacency probably put quite a lot of business will have put quite a lot of businesses out of business, um, and they're gonna need to come and ask for our help. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and, you know, like there's a humbling of some corporates and businesses that, that are go they're going to need the public to come back and rescue them. Um, and and there's, so the humbling that's happening right now uh, could be a real watershed moment. Businesses can't ignore, you know, conscious capitalism anymore. They cannot ignore, you know, that the public were saying for a long time, please take, you know, sort your carbon footprint out help us solve the environmental issues, you know, and they were going, no, no, I don't, that's your problem, it's not our problem. Now, the kind of, the, the table's turning ever so slightly, um, and for them to survive another massive economic downturn because of this, you know, another massive change in their business models, they're going to need to come back and, and ask for collaboration and permission, you know, to come back into people's lives, and it's, it's going to be a mad couple of years, but so exciting. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, I, it's almost like, vulnerability is the new black in the sense of if we think about contemporary leadership if you're as you are a, C a ceo of a company 30 40 years ago you probably knew every aspect of a business but now businesses are too complicated for any one person really to know how they work you've got technology even the cto probably doesn't understand every aspect of of technology within a large business, be it cybersecurity through to different development stacks. It's, there's just too much. So if you're the C CEO, you have to get to grips with the idea that you can't know everything. And that is a new type of vulnerability that a lot of people struggle with. And I think yeah. what you've just said really resonates because it's, it's that almost extending out to governments, to companies and, uh, businesses in the yeah. sense of we don't understand all of this we need your help and yeah. this this humbling and this new sense of uh, collaboration with a with, with a purpose definitely but also you know again I, I genuinely hope business leaders and and, and like actually everybody from the very bottom all the way to the top and, and you know the top down and, and left to right um, start to realize that the fun is in the learning not being the best and like being able to say i don't know like what that means i've got no idea i'm going to need to work with people that are way smarter than me to do that it's not like being vulnerable with that kind of stuff is not it's not a weakness that's a strength and that's you know i love this idea that suddenly we've given permission for everybody just to go you know or every business to say you know getting back to my point from earlier like we're not perfect and we're not we're not we're not claiming to be perfect let's all just solve this as a group as a collective um it's a it's a, it's a fascinating time the other one that uh, again I'm, I'm seeing big change now and i'm so happy to see this is this idea this kind of old adage that you know oh, one in four people have mental health concerns no 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 
four in four of us. Every single person has mental <laughs> health. Like, and, you know, everybody. And that means the, the people at the top, the people at the bottom, the people all the way through, the people on the street, the people you live next door to or whatever. It's not like something that affects uh, the, the occasional person. It affects every single person. And, you know, the minute business leaders start to acknowledge that, again, that changes the culture. It changes the way that they treat their staff. It changes the way that they create products. It changes the way that they, um, you know, communicate. It changes the way that they use data. Like absolutely everything changes when some of these old uh, norms are completely disrupted. Um, and there's no, nothing more disruptive than a good pandemic to kind of you know, <laughs> have everybody sitting around going like, oh, like I'm really scared. Um, or I'm a bit worried or my business is going to go you know, somewhere I don't want it to go. Um, it's quite a level of all of this. Well, Pete, thank you for an amazing conversation. We've we've covered lots of different uh, topics. It's been absolutely fascinating, and lots of um, optimism in there, and challenges, and, and and food food for thought. And you've you've outlined and painted a picture of this period potentially being uh, a real watershed moment in in lots of encouraging ways. And uh, and, and we thank you for that. Thank you for a brilliant conversation. Thanks for inviting me. It's been brilliant. Well, thanks for listening. My name is Lee Sankey, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Doors Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. You can get in touch with your comments and suggestions via our email, contact at doorglobal.com. You can subscribe to our emailing list and hear about future episodes and articles over at doorglobal.com. Thanks again, and until next time, keep well.